Prepare our hearts, Lord God. We are in awe of who you are. And we thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence this evening through worship. Father, may you be glorified tonight in all that we say or do. Let your word speak in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Well, good evening. When I first came in, I said good morning, so my timetables were a little off. When you think about the 12 most famous men in history, their accomplishments, all that they overcame, um, the amazing things that they did in their lives, what is incredible is that we don't remember their names, not all of them at least. Some of them we can remember from time to time, and I don't know if anyone here can quote all their names. I can't quote all their names. I'll have to read them to you tonight. But I'd like to read them just as a reminder. Um, so I'll go ahead and go through the list here. Tell me if they sound familiar to you. Um, Eugene Cernan, Jack Schmidt, Charles Duke Jr., John Young, James Irwin, David Scott, Edgar Mitchell, Alan Shepard, Alan Bean, Pete Conrad, maybe these last two will help you, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong. These are the only 12 men in the history of the world that have ever walked on the moon. July 20th, 1969, 54 years tomorrow, when the first man stepped on the moon, Neil Armstrong walked down the stairs of the lunar module, stepped on to the face of the moon, and he said, one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Now, I don't know about you, but I would never in a million years, somebody said, I'll give you a million dollars if you can remember Eugene Cernan, or if you can remember this person or this person. I can't remember them. When somebody is first at doing something, it's an amazing thing. I remember, anybody around... 1969, that can remember being in front of the TV and being glued to it and watching it and just being in a... Now, it was a red-letter day for me because July 20th, 1969 was my 16th birthday and I got my driver's license that day and I was so stoked and then I had baseball practice and then we were begging the coach, let us go home, let us go home, we don't want to miss it. And we got home and glued ourselves to the TV and watched and listened to Walter Cronkite as he described, you know, Neil Armstrong. So we, we have it in our minds, that last step when he steps down onto the surface, you know, and, we, and it'll be one of those memories that we'll have forever. But Neil Armstrong specifically, because he was the first to do it. And there's something about being first. Now, I'm not taking any way, anything from the other 11. It was Apollo 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, and 17 that made it to the moon. Of course, Apollo 13, we know from the famous Tom Hanks movie that didn't make it because the oxygen bottle exploded. And praise God, they all made it home safely. But those six flights that made it, those 12 men, it's, it's a unique and very special group of men. Now, there are another 12 men that are also very famous to the world. And even though these 12 men didn't walk on the moon, these men accomplished a lot in their lives. And I don't know, again, if there's anybody in this room that can name all 12 of them. But I'm going to list them off tonight to you, and they may sound a little bit more familiar than the first 12. 
Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, James the son of Alphaeus, Judas Iscariot, Thomas, Matthew, Philip, Bartholomew, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. We know them. They stick in our minds. We remember them because of all the stories that we've read about them over the years through the Gospels and in the book of Acts and later. But setting aside Judas Iscariot, when you think about the disciples, what's the one disciple's name that always comes to your mind? Anyone? Peter. Peter. Peter always stuck his foot in his mouth. Peter rebuked Jesus. Peter, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, says, Lord, let us build three tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you. Oh, this is great. And the Lord had to say, be quiet, Peter. This is my son. Let him speak. Peter was that man that, that always seemed to be doing something wrong. All right, so Peter was a unique individual because we, and because of that, we remember his name. We remember him being doing so many other things. But Peter was also someone in even a more prestigious class than the 12 men that walked on the moon. Because outside of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, Peter is the only man in the history of the world to have ever walked on water. If you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, Yeshua made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Yeshua went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately, Yeshua spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Yeshua. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Yeshua stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now let me give you a little background here, first of all, about the setting that we have. The Sea of Galilee, we pretty much all know it here, but it's also in the Bible mentioned as the Lake of Tiberias, the Sea of Chenereth, the Lake of Gesenerit, but most commonly to the Jewish people, it's called the Kinneret. And Kinneret comes from the Hebrew word kinor, 
and Kenor means harp-shaped. If you see, I've got some great pictures. I wanted to put a whole thing together with pictures behind me, but just imagine in your mind. It, it is like an upside-down pear in shape, and it looks like a David's harp. Not a harp that were a big harpist harp, but a small harp, almost like a guitar-sized harp that David would have played in that time. And that's the word Kenor, where we get Kenaret from. And so that's what it's known as today. Uh, anybody in Israel, if you say Sea of Galilee, they won't know it yet. Number one, it's not a sea. It's fresh water. And so it is a lake. Now, the Canera is um, eight miles wide, 13 miles long, and 157 miles, miles, 157 feet deep in the middle. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. 705 feet below sea level. We know the, the Dead Sea is the lowest body of water in the world, but the Canaret is the lowest freshwater body of water in the world. And now it used to be the primary source of water for Israel, for their drinking water. But now because they have the largest desalinization plants in the world that convert seawater into fresh, and they have the most amazing irrigation systems and water reclamation programs and anyone, people from all over the world go to Israel to learn how to save water. And because of that, they don't have to rely on the Canera any longer for their water supply. So it's mainly used today for uh, people to boat on and swim in and, and have a good time. So it's, it's primary use as tourism and recreation today. So here in the, we're going to look at these first five verses, 22 through 26. And I want you to imagine... Um, we have to understand, first of all, the background of this. We have these 12 disciples out on the water, and it's nighttime. Now, understand this. At least we know Peter, James, and John, at least, were fishermen. Some people believe there could have been five, maybe six of the disciples that were actually fishermen. So let's say this for the sake of it tonight, that half of those men on that boat were fishermen. They would have been very, very familiar with their surroundings. They knew that lake like the back of their hands. They were familiar with it. It was, it was customary. And we also know that fishing was always done at night. Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 5 says, Peter says, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. All night long. Janice and I, our house that we lived in in Tiberias Elite in Israel was on the highest street overlooking the Sea of Galilee. So we had this incredible panoramic view. And at night, we could see the fishermen's lights on their boats polka dotted throughout the lake. And we could see them moving around as they were fishing. And so we'd always, oh, there, there they are, they're out in the evening. And our next door neighbor was a retired fisherman, but his son now carried on the business. And every once in a while, Janice and I would bring them over on Shabbat, on Friday, we'd bring them over a loaf of challah bread. And we'd bring it over to them, and he, oh, wait, 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 wait. And he would go into his freezer and pull out a great big piece of fish about this big, and he'd wrap it up in a bag, and he'd give it to us to have to put it to eat. So we'd always, we got lots of fish from our neighbors. So it was great. But we'd see them out there right next door to us cleaning their nets, and they still use nets, which is amazing. And uh, so they were commercial fishermen, and it's still happening to this day. So these 12 disciples are out on the boat, and I've entitled this evening's study, or the message, Somewhere in the Middle. Because that's what it says here. It says that they were in the middle. Now, let's put it all together. Yeshua had just finished feeding the 5,000 that day. And he told the disciples, get in the boat and go to the other side. More than likely, it was still daytime when that happened. 
And now scripture tells us that it was now the fourth watch. The fourth watch of the night. Well, what is that? That means that the, the, the Romans used a, a way to divide the nighttime up into four quadrants of three hours each. You had six to nine, nine to 12, 12 to 3 a.m., and 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So if this was the fourth watch, then it was somewhere between three and six in the morning. If the disciples, if the disciples were told by Yeshua to go out and cross over to the other side, they might have left seven or eight o'clock in the evening, which means they could have been to get to the mill only at the oars, rowing as hard as they could for eight hours. Think about that. Now, if you've been rowing for eight hours and the wind was contrary, don't you love that word? I love that word, contrary. Okay? Uh, it, is a, it means that, that it goes against you. So contrary means with the wind and the waves, they were trying to get this way and the wind was blowing in the exact opposite direction. Have you ever felt like that in your lives? Ever feel like the winds are contrary and you're doing everything you can, your hands are to the oar, you're working hard, you're trying to do everything you can to accomplish something or just get through another week and you're doing everything and you feel like you're in the middle and you're not going anywhere. Your wheels are spinning, but nothing's moving. That's the feeling I think the disciples had when they were in the middle. They were wet from the wind hitting the water and blowing it onto the boat. They were exhausted. They were afraid. And remember, half of them were seasoned fishermen. They had been in this place before. Now, Janice and I have been down to the Canary in a storm. I've got some great video footage of probably the largest storm as of late, which was 1992, which had 10-foot swells. That's big for a lake. That's protected by a valley all the way around. The lake sits down low and the mountains go all the way around like this on all sides. And so you would think it would be very protected. But at times it can develop up to 10 foot swells. And if it was contrary at this time, the disciples were probably getting a little panicky. They didn't have life preservers back then, you know, or anything like that. They couldn't call the Coast Guard, you know, to come and rescue them. They didn't know what was going on. Maybe being pitch black, they'd even lost sight of, you know, which way they were going and they were rowing, and they were exhausted. And Yeshua comes to them, walking on the water in the early morning hours. And they saw him, and they thought he was a ghost. And they were afraid. All right, so the winds are contrary. Anybody go through some trials in the last year? Raise your hand. Have you been through a trial in the last year? Last six months? Last month? last week. There always are challenges that are going on in our lives. You know, God loves to stretch our faith muscles. And one of the ways he does it is by giving us tests. So the disciples have just been on shore and seen a miraculous thing happen. A few loaves of, of, uh, and some couple of fish and 5,000 were fed. 5,000 men that's just speaking of men. If you take women and children, if you just were to double that, that would be an easy number, 10,000. 10,000 or more just got fed by some loaves and fish. And the disciples gathered up baskets full af afterwards. I mean, it was an incredible miracle. And they had this fresh in their mind and Yeshua sends them out on the water. Anybody ever have a a teacher or an instructor of any kind or a coach 
that pushed you farther or further, whichever the application is, than you wanted to go? You ever have a teacher like that? I mean, those, those coaches or teachers that said, you can do better. You can do better than this. And I had, a, I had a college professor for history, and he pushed me so much from the first day, I, I hated his guts. But his teaching was so good and so interesting that my grades slowly started climbing. And by the end of my semester, I got my report card, and I knew no matter how hard I worked for the rest of the semester, those, that first F on the first test, and subsequently I started to realize, this guy's a really good teacher. I couldn't quite catch up, and I knew I deserved nothing better than a C plus. And I got my report card, and it was a B minus. And I went to him, and I said, look, I don't deserve this grade, Mr. Davis. I, I, I know I didn't do B work at all. He goes, I know we got off the wrong, on the wrong foot and had our differences and things. He goes, but I saw you really ap apply yourself after that, and you tried and you pushed through, and I think you deserved it, so I gave it to you. I said, wow, college professor giving me a B. So I admired him because he pushed me. Coaches and other things do it, but when you're pushed to go beyond what you think you can do, you're in in sports, it's your muscles that develop, but the Lord wants us to develop our faith muscles. And so Yeshua, being a great teacher, he says, okay, I've just given you guys a lesson in faith, now I want you to go out on the water and I'm going to see how you do. He wants us to launch into the deep. It's scary in the deep, isn't it? It's not a safe place, all right? And yet Yeshua put his disciples in that place, but he had told them, go to the other side. And yet they were still only in the middle. So, in times like that, we sometimes don't know what to do, but we know that the Lord is with us. In verses 27 through 30, we look and we see that they cried out. They cried out, Lord, say, you know, it does help us. Oh, it's, it's, it's me. Don't worry, guys. It's, everything's okay. It's all right. Be of good cheer. Do not be afraid. That word cheer, I don't know if, if your translation says that, but the word cheer is better translated uh, be of good courage or take comfort. And I, I love that. The Lord loves to be our encouragement and he loves to be the one who comforts us. He knows our circumstances before we even ask. But he desires that our faith overcome our doubts and fears that come in our hearts. He says, it is I, I'm here. I will never leave you or forsake you. You can trust in me, lean on me, depend on me. So Peter responds in verse 28 and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Notice Peter begins his request with an if. If it's really you, if it's you, Lord. And he ends with a desire of proof, of verification. Prove it by letting me do this. Can you imagine Peter, a seasoned fisherman, climbing out of the side of that boat and stepping down firmly on water? Wouldn't that be a weird sensation? I can imagine Peter like this. Maybe Yeshua's only 10 yards away, but he's probably, I don't know. This is, you know, it's kind of iffy. He's not sure what to make of this, but he begins to walk toward Yeshua. I love the picture that that gives. Sometimes when we're first starting out in our faith with Yeshua, we take small steps. We're unsure of ourselves. We even come sometimes with timidity before the Lord. 
But as we grow in our faith and, and we learn his word and we memorize scripture and all these things, we should be to a point where we can come boldly before the throne of grace with full confidence that he hears our prayers and answers our prayers. But Peter started out slowly, which is understandable based on the situation. After all, other, again, other than Yeshua, he's the only one that's ever walked on water. So Peter says, if and the Lord, you know, if you really, it's almost as if Peter is saying, if you really love me, Lord, let me come to you. Have you guys ever done that? Lord, if you really love me, you'll help me out of this tough situation. If you really love me, Lord, you'd answer my prayer. If you'd really love me, Lord, you'd heal this person. We have a lot of trials and things that go on in our lives, and it's not just in ours. It can be a loved one. Um, it can be a, a close friend. It can be a stranger. I had a lady walk up to me at work a couple of weeks ago, and I, I work at Trader Joe's, and she came through my line, and I could just tell she was really hurting. So I asked her if she was okay, and she said, my husband died two years ago. I'm selling my house. I'm moving to another state where I'm buying another house, and my house has been on the market for four months, and it won't sell, and she was just in pieces. So I grabbed somebody to take over my register, and I followed her out, and I said, let me pray for you. And I, and I prayed for her, and she was in tears, and she thanked me. Two nights ago, I was at work, and she, I saw her, and I walked up to her and said, how are you doing, Catherine? And she goes, I am so glad you're working. I... Two or four days after you prayed, my house sold. And she was so excited. And she goes, I've still got a lot of burdens, but that was a big one lifted. And she goes, and, and your prayer had so much peace behind it. You know, but she had so much burden, you could just see it on her face. And even though she was still greatly burdened with a lot of things still to do, um, you know, sometimes it's just having someone come up and say, how you doing? Can I pray for you? Sometimes we hide our burdens and we come to church and we can have be weighed down with this great weight and somebody can say, hey, how are you doing this morning? And we say, oh, I'm great. Hey, praise the Lord. Everything, Because we want to, we don't want to, first of all, let people into our lives, into the business or let somebody know there's something going on in our lives or our faith maybe not as good as it should be or a lot of things. And so we don't open up and share to others about our prayer needs. And yes, we have our spouses and others, but sometimes it's good to grab someone and pray. And, there, and there's power in that. So if you're in that place and you, and you have those feelings, you know, get up, grab Greg, grab myself after service, grab Ed, and, and let us pray for you because there's so much power in prayer if we just allow the Lord to, to step in and, and do that. Don't be afraid to let down your guard. So Peter says, if it's you, let me come. The Lord says, come. Now, at that same time, Peter did ask, again, a remarkable thing. Can I walk on water? That's pretty bold. Peter's done some pretty bold questions in the past, but never quite, I think, to this level. Lord, he's, He has said, Lord, you are the Lord. You are the Savior of the world. He's, he has said that. He recognized that. And, and Yeshua said to him, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But this time, he says, let me walk on water. For a fisherman, this is big. It's a really big thing. And, Peter actually climbed out of the boat with his sandals firmly placed on the water and he walked to Yeshua. That's a, a big major step for Peter. So he starts walking toward Yeshua on top of the water. And you know, when we keep our eyes on him and stay entrenched in his word and devoted to prayer, it's amazing what the Lord can do at those times when we're fully surrendered to him and fully committed to him and doing his will, God can do anything. 
Um, my first missionary trip was to uh, Bangkok, Thailand. And when it was time to get our visas renewed, we could only get a month at a time. We went to get our visas from the official, and he said no. He wouldn't renew them. And then he literally, literally went like this. Like, where's the cash? I will not give you guys your visas unless you grease my palm. He literally put his hand under the table like this to us. That's how corrupt it was. Well, we thought, you know, it wouldn't really be good for us to be serving the Lord and paying off somebody under the table. So we refused. And he said, fine, when can you leave my country? And we said, well, today. We don't have any choice, you know. So we bought, um, there were seven of us, four girls, three guys, and we bought some round-trip tickets to take the train all the way down to Malaysia, two-day trip. So we get to the border, and we go to go into Malaysia, and the man looks at our passports. Guess what? They're two days expired. And this guy got angry with us. And he made us march up into town to his office. And six of us sat outside of his office. And the leader, the guy that was the leader of our group named Robbie, went inside. And this guy started yelling and screaming at him. And we can, there's a window. We can see him and we can hear every word that they're saying. And he says, I'm going to lock you guys up for 48 hours before, you know, before I'll let you go back into the country. Because you broke the law. Your visas, your passports are expired by two days. And now two responses by the other six of us sitting out there, okay? The girls in the group, they were praying so fervently, so intensely. They'd heard the stories in Malaysia. They said they have rats the size of cats. You know, it's, it's dirty. It's, and, and they're praying, oh, Lord, deliver us. I'm praying, oh, God, we get to suffer for you. Go, we get to go like, be locked up in prison just like Paul and Silas. We'll be singing praises in the middle of the night. I was actually thinking that way. I was excited about going to jail. You know, I was, I wasn't for the Lord's sake, it was because our visas were expired, but still, I had that kind of mindset. And so he says, I'm going to go get the paperwork out of the file cabinet, and then you guys are off to jail. He walks out of the room, across uh, the room that we are in, right in front of us, opens the file cabinet, grabs some papers, slams the door, walks back. The moment he opened the door to go back into the office, the Holy Spirit fell on this man so powerfully that the next words are out of his mouth to, to Robbie, our, our leader, were, I am so sorry. For, I, there, there's some kind of a mix-up. I'm so sorry. He started treating us like we were foreign dignitaries. He was just treating us like he wanted to bow down. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. You know, it was all a mistake. He put us in his air-conditioned car and drove us back to the border. And he got there and he processed all of our paperwork. He said, spend the night in Malaysia. Tomorrow morning, when you come back, if I'm not here, come up to my office. I'll come down. I'll take care of everything. We came the next day. He was right there. He saw us, 15 people in front of us, and he marches us to the front of the line, and he starts stamping our, you know, all of our passports. And like I said, the traditional thing was 30 days. We looked at our passport, and he gave us all six-month visas. Amazing, just incredible. And we're sitting there going, but when it first happened and, and he began to apologize and come out, we're going, what just happened? No phone calls, didn't talk to anybody, you know, didn't do anything, just walked up, got the paperwork, walked back, and changed. I know it was those four girls' prayers. I know they were praying like they had never prayed before. And that leads me to ask this this evening why is it that our prayers are the most fervent when the need is the greatest? What keeps us from praying fervently on a regular basis? Because it's, it's easy 
to love the Lord and, and have a great attitude when everything is going well. But how about when things aren't going well? How about when the car gets a flat tire on the way to work? How about when there's a, a job change or you lose your job or there's an illness in the family or for yourself? What about when there's changes like that that happen? Can we still praise him during those times? Can we still say, God, I trust you and allow our faith to be in control to say, I don't know how this is gonna work out, but God help me to walk on water. Amen? Amen. All right, so it says that when Peter saw the winds and the waves, verse 30, that the wind was boisterous. I love that word. It's not a word we use. Hey, isn't it a boisterous day out? I mean, just, but boisterous means, means loud, noisy, or unrestrained. Powerful wind, boisterous. He says he was afraid and being, beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. If there were ever three more beautiful words that the Lord loves to hear. Not just before we get saved, but when we're saved, anytime. Lord, save me. Not just when things are going well, but even then, when things are going great, Lord, save me. When we know of any kind of a prayer need or something going on in our desire to seek him, our prayer should be with that fervency that Peter had when his sandals started disappearing under the water. Lord, save me. He loves to hear that. So, now, when that happened, the Lord didn't look at Peter and go, come on, Peter, have great faith. Now he's up to his knees. Ah, Peter, you're not doing very well. Now Peter's up to his arms, you know. The Lord didn't just watch him sink, you know. It says, immediately, immediately. I love that word. Without delay, at that very moment, immediately, Yeshua reached out and took Peter's hand without delay. And it says, it doesn't say it, but we know what happened. Yeshua raised him up. There is nothing, nothing like the feeling of crying out to the Lord and feeling his hand in yours as he lifts you up. Sometimes it can be after an illness. Sometimes it can be just the peace that he can give you in the midst of a situation, but when he takes you by the hand. There was a famous artist many years ago that drew a picture of a rock in the middle of an ocean, a tempest with waves crashing over the rock, and the man was up clinging to the rock. And that picture was supposed to be, from our standpoint, as a believer, that the Lord is our rock and we're clinging to him in the midst of a storm. When he finished it, he wasn't satisfied with his painting. So he covered over the man, making the rock look like all of a rock again, then repainted the man. But this time, the man was on his knees on the rock with his hand reaching out, and another man's hand was reaching up in the storm, and he was taking him by the hand to lift him up. And it's that beautiful picture of what the Lord does for us in the middle of a tempest. He lifts us up without delay, immediately. So, Yeshua didn't tell Peter, uh, Yeshua did say to Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And that was a gentle rebuke, I think, because at the same time he said that, he had also lifted Peter up on top of the water. 
But notice when in the midst of the situation that when things happen with the Lord and, and he does a mighty work in our lives, he doesn't usually do it in stages. He does do things in our lives immediately. Uh, the best example I can give to that, Janice had played two soccer games one morning. She was exhausted and went to the beach, went out in the water for a swim and got caught by the tide. The current took her out to the point where she couldn't see the shore anymore and the waves and the winds and everything else. The swells were so great she couldn't see the shoreline anymore. She's a strong swimmer, but two soccer games wears you out. And being a good swimmer, she was trying to swim parallel. She was trying to do everything to do it right, but she finally came to the point where she realized she couldn't do anything to save herself. And she cried out to the Lord. And suddenly, immediately, she looks and there's two guys swimming out in the middle of the ocean by themselves. And she yells, help me! And one of the guys turns and swam over. He goes, what do you want me to do for you? And she goes, get me to shore, please. She said, he took her by the hand and she said she felt like she was being dragged by a motorboat. And she said, immediately, she was on the shore. She can't remember, I mean, just, and she, next thing you know, she's on the shore. She's on her stomach, exhausted, and she turns around to thank him. Nobody there. He's gone. So that was the, the best true life story that I can think of when the Lord saves immediately. All, all she could say when he said, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> get me, help me, get me to shore. And that's what the Lord does. He takes us by the hand and draws us to shore. Now, when they get back to the boat, you have to remember, Peter's now back up on the water again. He's walking, and he's got Yeshua by the hand, probably, and they're walking back, hand in hand, back to the boat. What I love the most about this story, it says here that when they got back to the boat, all the other 11 disciples were lined up saying, me next, I want to go on the water, me next. Your text doesn't say that? Anywhere about the other disciples wanting to go for a walk on the water? Maybe some barefoot water skiing behind the boat. We don't see it, do we? We can say that, yes, Yeshua had to say, oh, you have little faith. You know, where's your faith, Peter? But remember, Peter was the only one of the 12 that was willing to not only ask, but to get out of the boat and walk to Yeshua. So there's going to be times where we step out in faith and maybe we'll fall flat on our faces. Or maybe we'll step out in faith and we'll say, oh, this is so much harder than I thought it was going to be. Or, or Lord, are, are you really in the midst of all this? Remember that first time when you rode a bicycle? I crashed so many times. I got so beat up. I couldn't believe it. And finally one day, I'm over at this girl's house. You know, we're like six, seven years old, walking home from grammar school. And she goes, I'm going to go change in some play clothes. Why don't you ride my bike? And I said, I don't know how. I hadn't learned yet. I kept crashing. And she goes, oh, come on, it's easy. And she put me on the bike and she pushed me down the street. And all of a sudden, everything came in and I was doing it. And I was going around the block and around. I was so excited. I'm pedaling. And I come around this one curve and there's a car there. And I don't know how to use the brakes, coaster brakes. I've never... And so I go full speed into the curb, flip over the handlebars, and land flat on my back. Ambulance had to take me to the hospital. That was my experience. <laughs> but... I still got back on a bike and rode again. You know, when we go through hardships and challenges, the Lord allows us to do that 
to test our faith and say, okay, let's see how you do this time. Pedal a little bit further. Let's see how you do this time. We go a little farther. God is always, always testing our faith. And the very fact that Peter had enough faith to walk on the water was absolutely amazing to me. Remember, a short time after this, after Yeshua had died and was risen from the dead, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, spoke great powerful words and 3,000 people came to know the Lord. How amazing is this man who one minute is sinking on the Canaret, a short time later, with the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through him, was doing great and powerful things for our Lord. Then those, it says, verse 33, that those who were in the boat came and worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. Do we say that enough to our Lord today? Do we say, oh Lord, truly, you are the Son of God and worship him? You know, it's great to sing praises and worship at home or in your car. It's, it's great to praise him when you're driving. It's, it's great to, if you have scriptures memorized, to quote scripture as you're doing something or going somewhere. Because it refreshes the soul. And allows us to feel Yeshua take us by the hand and direct us. We need to do it every moment. Every breath we take, every time we go to work, every time we do whatever we're doing, you know, if it's something dangerous like mowing the lawn or, or doing rock climbing or something, yeah, we might say, oh, Lord, help me in this situation. But a lot of the times we don't. A lot of times we forget to ask him even of the trivial things. How much more so if we were to say, Lord, help me here? Or about those times when we've done something so many times or we think it's an easy task, we don't seek his direction or wisdom. We do things by rote, whether it's driving somewhere. An accident can happen at any moment. Anything can happen. A deer can come out in front of us. We never know. But it's during those times when we are casual and lax that things happen and that we can make mistakes and we can sin or we could fall. We have to be careful those times. That's when the enemy wants to come in. That's why it's good to, be, to worship. That's why it's good to you know, speak the word of God through the verses that we've memorized. That's why it's good to pray with others, to keep that strong relationship with the Lord just that way, strong. Now, for most of us here, we're, we're past a certain age where we may not be in the prime of our lives anymore. What I want to do in my life personally, and what I wish every believer would do, I don't want to be that person that goes across the finish line on my hands and knees, dragging myself across the finish line. I want to finish strong. I want to be able for each one of you to be able to say, I, I want to finish not gasping for air, but finishing strong in the Lord. I know too many believers over 40-something years of walking with the Lord that aren't even walking with him anymore. Don't go to church, don't read his word. They got saved back in the 70s and 80s and I went to Bible school with them, went overseas with them and they don't 
have a relationship with the Lord anymore. They don't walk with him. I want to have the same fervency for him and his word that I had at 23 years of age when I became a believer. I want to have that same desire and hunger for his word that I had then and, and get up early, and, and it's hard to get up early sometimes, isn't it? But to get up early and, and read his word and to make that a priority. I, I don't want to have anything that would hinder me from my relationship with the Lord. I want to finish strong. I want you to all finish strong. And it's, it's not by our past efforts that that's accomplished. The enemy loves to bring, oh, look what you've done in the past. That's great. You're doing fine. And instead, the Lord would say, I've got much more for you, more than you ever imagined. If you just take those steps of faith. Allow the Lord to do that tonight. Be like Peter. Be bold. Lord, let me come to you on the water. We know it's him. But we need to ask for the faith to do great things in his name. Thou art coming to a king. Great petitions with thee bring. For thy grace and power are such that thou canst never ask too much. Father, we just thank you this evening for your word. I thank you for Peter, Lord. He is the epitome of man. Strong one minute, weak the next. Speaking great things one minute and having great faith. Falling flat on his face or sinking in the canary at the next. Lord, he is our picture of our lives. Lord, we want to be that Peter that excelled in the Gospels and did great things in the book of Acts and beyond. Help us, Father, to increase our faith by being steadfast in your word and steadfast in prayer, keeping short lists of our sins with you, seeking forgiveness on a daily, hourly basis, Lord God, crying out to you and saying, Lord, save us. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.